Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, joining us for this pre-Thanksgiving Politics Day. Sarah Mitchell is the F. Wendell Miller Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Rachel Caulfield joining us as well from our Des Moines studio, Professor of Political Science at Drake University. Rachel, good to have you on board as well. Hi, it's good to be here. Join us with your questions, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Later in the program, Rachel and Sarah's views on that um, uh, federal court ruling uh, drastically re- weakening the Voting Rights Act earlier this week. Also, Speaker Mike Johnson visiting Mar-a-Lago um, while uh, courts uh, wrestle with that gag order. We've seen that over a number of weeks, the gag order on uh, former President Trump. Ron DeSantis courting Iowa's religious right and uh, picking up uh, another um, um, significant endorsement uh, this week. Nikki Haley uh, seeing growing interest from political independence in the state. Join us, 1-866-780-9100, or email river to river at iowapublicradio.org with your questions. But let's start, first of all, the hour with uh, what leads uh, our news, at least the NPR news that we just heard. Israel and Hamas apparently agreeing to a hostage release deal, 50 women and children, including three Americans, it's reported, uh, held in the Gaza Strip, uh, to be released in exchange for a at least a four-day pause in fighting. Um, Israel uh, will release 150 Palestinian women and children held in its prisons to allow uh, and allow more fuel and humanitarian aid into Gaza. Uh, this is the first major pause in what has been a six-week assault uh, that has devastated Gaza following that deadly October 7th attack on Israel. To you, uh, Sarah, first of all, with um, as uh, someone with foreign policy expertise, what do you see as the significance of this deal? Well, I think, first of all, uh, you know, this was a deal that President Biden was heavily involved in in terms of negotiating the deal. So shortly after the October 7th attack, uh, his administration was approached by the Qatar government um, and basically they they asked for a cell which was a a secret small group of people that would work on the issue Um, and so they they went back and forth and Qatar was able to negotiate with the Hamas leadership Um, and so this you know uh, Biden going to um, Israel uh, was part of that he went there on October 18th and met met with uh, Netanyahu. Uh, And so essentially, uh, there was a lot of uh, secret negotiations going on. And and so so it was was a win for Biden to at least get a pause in the fighting. Um, It's not a ceasefire, though. So Israel has made it clear that they will continue to fight uh, once the, the, the cessation of hostilities ends. Uh, They did say uh, today that they would continue to add an extra day of, um, you know, not fighting for every 10 additional hostages that are released going forward. So so uh, Hamas would have the ability to extend that that four day period. Um, But, you know, humanitarian aid is desperately needed. 
14,000 Palestinians have died. Uh, 1.6 of the 2.1 million Palestinians in Gaza have been displaced. Food and fuel are obviously in scarce supply, and their healthcare system has essentially collapsed. So, so this is a definite, definitely needed um, to get humanitarian aid because the Gaza Strip has been under siege um, by Israel, essentially not allowing people or, or goods to move f- uh, freely across the borders. Uh, this is the situation that we're that that uh, Gaza is facing. Yeah. And the the weeks and weeks of devastation in Gaza, the tremendous loss of civilian life there has um, had an effect on world opinion and opinion here domestically in the U.S., Rachel. Um, what's your view on that and connected with, I guess, the, the pressure on Biden to work out this deal if it goes through? Yeah, Biden's and the White House uh, has been making a big push today in particular to really get the news out that Biden's been instrumental in organizing this potential agreement. Um, And part of that is because, you know, the White House recognizes that this has been just a public opinion uh, quagmire for him, right? You have a lot of Democrats who are deeply opposed to his administrative positions um, and support of Israel. You can look at some of the polling numbers and you can see pretty dramatic shifts um, just in terms of overall approval rating across the board for all voters. You know, last January had about a 46 percent approval rating, about 50 percent disapproval. Um, And that's down now to 40 percent approval and 57 percent disapproval, uh, which is a pretty dramatic shift among independent voters. Sixty three percent now say they disapprove of his job performance. Uh, Even Democrats are down. And crucially, on questions of foreign policy, just since September, his approval rating has fallen from 41 percent to 33 percent. Disapproval has gone up from 53 to 62 percent. And you see a particularly strong generational divide there. So young voters in particular, they're Mm -hmm. not reliable voters to begin with. Remember, we're going into a presidential election year. Joe Biden needs those voters. Um, Young voters are overwhelmingly voting Democrat, of course. Um, But right now, 70 percent say 70 percent of young voters, 18 to 34, say that they disapprove of his handling of the war. Um, And so, you know, his his administration has some uh, has some challenges ahead of it, particularly on this front, and they know it. And so, you know, they're trying to get the message out that he's been really instrumental in negotiating this and that he's trying to kind of satisfy all sides of his electoral coalition. Yeah. You, you mentioned young voters there, Rachel, um, and both of you have young voters, the youngest voters, uh, the youngest set in your both of your classrooms. I'm curious, Rachel, um, how this war is being discussed in your classroom. And we know the backdrop here, pro-Palestinian protests have attracted attention at campuses across the country. Well, like a lot of college campuses, you know, we're seeing just this... Um, kind of general discontent, uh, lots of very, um, very raw emotions and feelings about it on both sides. 
Um, in my classroom, I teach American politics. We haven't talked about it that much. We have lots of other things to be talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see it kind of across the board. I know students who have lost friends because of this particular divide in opinion right now. Really? Uh, yep, yeah, on college campuses. Um, and so, you know, it's not just obviously at Drake or in Iowa. It's across the board. You can You can go on any news site and you'll see some of the the real controversies that have come up on college campuses across the country. Um, but young voters are deeply committed to this, and, and they have a very different view than many older voters. So that same poll indicating that voters 18 to 34 have a 70 percent disapproval of how Joe Biden is handling the the war, you know, older voters, 65 and older, have a 53% approval rating of how Joe Biden is handling this war. Like, it's just, it's a really dramatic generational shift in mindset. Mm-hmm. Sarah uh, Mitchell, what about in your classroom? Well, I think there are certainly groups on campus, you know, that have organized protests um, that, that are, you know, talking about... Uh, you know, Palestinian rights uh, in this situation. But in in the classroom itself, I would say students, I'm teaching introduction to international relations, and we have uh, discussion sections. And and, uh, we last week, actually, we had a discussion uh, about this issue. And I would say most people, uh, you know, were taking you know, like moderate positions and really asking questions when they're talking about it. So so I think mm-hmm. a lot of our students are trying to learn more about what's happening and more about the history of the situation. Um, I wanted to say on the polls, I think it's interesting that if, if you look at the, the Kinnipiac University poll uh, in terms of Democrat support on Israel, it's actually dropped uh, from uh, 48% in favor of Israel October 17th to 41% now. So, so I thought that was kind of an interesting shift. Um, on the other hand, though, if you look at historically, foreign policy issues have not typically been decisive in U.S. presidential elections. Um, and so... On the one hand, I see that this is a very divisive issue, but we also know from a lot of other elections that um, foreign policy issues aren't (laughs) in the driver's seat, so to speak. Um, So so we we could be, you know, making a lot out of something that might have a smaller effect than than we're thinking as as we're talking about it right now. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, how do you judge the climate in Congress for future aid to Israel? Um, you know, and that's being mentioned in the same breaths as uh, future aid for Ukraine and also uh, southern border security, right? Yeah, there's this whole national security package that the administration's put forward that would include aid for Israel, humanitarian assistance for the region, uh, but also aid for Ukraine. And then particularly in the House, there's a real effort to tie it to immigration reform and border security. Um, and of course, you know, new speaker Mike Johnson, um, he he's in a very unique position here. He he passed the spending bill, but he did it with more Democratic support than Republican support. And he has a right flank that is really upset about that. Um, we know that there are deep divisions 
in the Republican Party on funding for Ukraine. Uh, we know that there are divisions in the Democratic Party among funding for about funding for Israel. So, for example, Senator Bernie Sanders wants to put all sorts of conditions on any funding for Israel. Um, we know that there has to be bicameral agreement between the Republican-controlled House and the Democratic Senate. Quite frankly, a lot of people in Congress right now are saying, we don't know that we can get this across the finish line. Um, and anybody who was watching Congress last week, I mean, some of the displays of just childish confrontation, mm -hmm. uh, really striking. Yeah, we, we sure saw that last week on full display in Capitol Hill. Um, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, two political scientists as we uh, have them offer their views on some of the latest political developments. When we come back, I want to get their views on the Voting Rights Act development there in the news. Um, Monday, a ruling, a federal court ruling would block private citizens and civil rights groups from suing under a key provision of the Voting Rights Act from 1965. We'll talk about that when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer, our Politics Wednesday edition. And with us, we have two very able political scientists, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University. The Voting Rights Act, a landmark law, has for decades uh, protected black Americans from attempts to erode their political power. This week uh, dealt one of the most significant challenges uh, when a federal appeals court moved to strike down a crucial part of the legislation. Monday in its ruling, uh, the court said would this ruling would block private citizens and civil rights groups from suing under a key provision of the law. Rachel, you start us off, please, on this topic. Help us understand the significance you see in this ruling on Monday. Well, you know how much I love talking about court rulings. Um, so this, <laughs> this case comes out of Arkansas. There's a challenge to the new districting map um, under the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, which basically says any voting practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race or color, um, they include certain language minority groups, that, that those are not allowed. Um, and so, you know, a challenge was brought to this redistricting map and the district court judge basically said, hey, you know what, like the way I read the statute, these claims have to be brought by the Department of Justice, by the attorney general. So I'm going to give the attorney general five days to join the lawsuit. And the attorney general said, nope, not going to do that. Um, and so this district court judge dismissed the case. And that was appealed to the Eighth Circuit. I was in the Eighth Circuit. Um, and the 
circuit court, the the circuit court of appeals, basically said, nope, we're going to uphold that. We think that's good. We think that only the Department of Justice and the Attorney General has the authority to bring lawsuits under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. This is a huge, huge, like, landmark. Uh, it's going to it's going to shift fundamentally the enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. If it is upheld, I think it's likely to go to the Supreme Court. There's a conflicting ruling out of the Fifth Circuit. Those sorts of, we call them circuit splits, oftentimes make their way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But already we're seeing one implication of this ruling. There's a North Dakota case uh, that's being brought by a number of tribes, um, also challenging the redistricting map. And there was a decision that was handed down on Friday um, that required the state to redraw those district boundaries by the end of December, by the 22nd of December. And now they're saying, you know, we're going to take that. We're going to appeal that ruling. We're going to take it to the Eighth Circuit. And the Eighth mm-hmm. Circuit just said that these groups as private entities, they don't have the authority to bring this case. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're already seeing that this could potentially really alter Uh, the power to enforce that provision of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, and with the outcome that we know our elections are decided by often very thin margins in states, the Electoral College or otherwise, and congressional things. This, um, uh, this, you know, the, the reason the major parties are fighting over this uh, is that it can have it real— It matters. R- it matters, right? It matters a lot. <laughs> and just to put it in context, over the past 40 years, the decision notes this, over the past 40 years, there have been 182 successful challenges under Section 2. Wow. And only 15 of those were brought by the Attorney General and the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. So you get an idea about the scale here. That means effectively that, you know, more than 90 percent of the existing rulings under Section 2 would be deemed absolutely not legitimate under this new interpretation of Section 2. Sarah Mitchell, um, bound to end up uh, before uh, the Supreme Court, this case. Um, what are your thoughts when, when we look down the road a little bit and, and we look at this current 6-3 conservative majority on our high court? Well, I think it's interesting because uh, in the Alabama redistricting case, the U.S. Supreme Court reaffirmed the use of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And in that case, uh, that was ordering the state to redraw its con- congressional map to guarantee more political power for black voters. Um, so I think because, but but of course there were earlier decisions by the court that were, uh, you know, weakening, seemed to be weakening uh, the implementation of the Voting Rights Act. So I think it, it will be interesting to watch um, how SCOTUS, uh, you know, takes these different even its own positioning on on the issue uh, yeah. as the case moves moves up the court structure. Yeah, Sarah. But with the conservative six three majority, it's not it's not a given how they'll rule in your view. Well, that's what I'm saying. The in the Alabama case, their, their reaffirmation of the use of Section Two was surprising. I see. Um, to, I see. So to some analysts. So mm-hmm. so that's why I'm saying it, it's uh-huh. not not obvious uh, that which way I think maybe Rachel has a different view on this. Yeah, but, Rachel, <laughs> is how, it how obvious? Will, yeah. No, I would agree. Yeah, it's not obvious, agree. Rachel. Not huh? obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a chance that given their reaffirmation of Section 2 and given the longstanding precedent here, I mean, it has long been assumed that these private organizations and, and citizens have 
the the right to bring these cases. So to undo that at this juncture um, and and kind of wipe the slate clean and say, nope, all that precedent is wrong, yeah. right? It's got big implications. And there are individuals on that court, and I'm thinking particularly of Justice Roberts, for example, um, who are really loath to say, you know, we're just going to rewrite it and skip everything that's been done. Uh, so... I think there are compelling arguments uh, that would lead the court in either direction. Um, you know, that from a prediction standpoint, there are compelling reasons why we might think that the court would decide either way. It's not at all certain to me. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined us, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Politics Wednesday edition of our program. Uh, let's go to House Speaker Mike Johnson and what he's uh, been Uh, doing nearly a month uh, in his uh, present leadership position in the House on Monday night, evidently, according to reports, meeting with former President Trump at Mar-a-Lago, that estate in Florida, meeting coming days after he said he is, quote, all in for President Trump. I have endorsed him wholeheartedly, he said last week. Uh, And the the context here mentioned before, uh, this comes as Speaker Johnson faces some anger from right-wing lawmakers for moving to fund the government, that deal with a lot of Democrats in the House to to make sure our government uh, continues uh, to be funded and operating. Sarah, um, uh, talk about this visit to the, the, the Trump and Mike Johnson relationship as you see it. Well, I think he was criticized because there was a, a 2015 social media post that, that came to the surface where he was criticizing Trump's re-election bid at the time. And so I think he was, you know, trying to smooth things over here. And mm-hmm. obviously, uh, a lot of the the coalition that supports him remaining in the post, uh, you know, are are strongly tied to President, former President Trump. So I think, um, you know, this this is smart politics. Also, if you look at, you know, strong partisans among the GOP, they're they're you can see the Iowa uh, polling numbers right now, right? Very strongly. Uh, supporting Trump. So I think so I think he's just uh, trying to solidify, um, you know, the the base support and to, um, yeah, he, he's trying to play both sides here because as he moves forward in the budget negotiations, he's going to have to make some uh, compromises in those negotiations. So I think he's at least signaling, right, that he's yeah. he's fully supporting Trump and his his bid for re-election. Uh, to go back to that social media um, comment by Mike Johnson from 2015, uh, the quote here, uh, according to the New York Times, Johnson saying, quote, uh, Trump lacks the character and moral center we desperately need again in the White House and suggested that his hot-headedness is, quote, danger, a dangerous trait to have in a commander-in-chief. Um so, Rachel, your thoughts on this relationship and, of course, you know, flip-flopping back to support Trump after heavily criticizing him, uh, you know, put him with a group of other uh, leading GOP politicians would be a long line that he has to get into. To, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not it's not any it's 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 just uh, speaks to our times, doesn't it? It does. And, and Mike Johnson, you know, in 2020 was a big supporter of of Donald Trump, particularly through the um, you know, arguments about the veracity of election results, um, and he was one of the 
the kind of first people to come out and say, you know, we might have some real questions. I would differentiate him a little bit from some of the election denialism that we see among Republicans only because, you know, his claims were much more legally based in like mm. what's going on with these secretaries of state who are kind of changing election laws on the fly. Um, and and I, I think he was more narrowly focused oh. on practices in the states as opposed to kind of these widespread conspiracy theories that that came to take hold within that movement. But he was in many ways an architect of congressional efforts to not certify the 2020 elections. So he's been a you know, he's been firmly in that base for a while. I would say, you know, regarding the his current position, Mike Johnson, he's he's in an impossible spot. Right. I mean, he's taken a job uh, that he knows any one member of his caucus can move to oust him. Um, We've seen this battle uh, in in the Republican Party within the House. he he's just in a really strange position right now and he's had this budget fight he knows that there are people on his right flank who are very angry at him right now chuck roy said right this is strike one and strike two chip roy came out and said then you know if we don't get a good immigration deal out of this supplemental aid package this national security supplemental aid package uh, if we don't tie immigration to that and if the provisions aren't strong enough, that's strike three. Yeah. And if you're Mike Johnson, that's terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the caucus uh, seems willing and able to to use this new motion to vacate rule. Um, and so, you know, shoring up support among that flank of the Republican Party is really good politics right now. Yeah. And the, the, his predecessor, um, uh, Kevin McCarthy, didn't last a, a year in the positions. Sarah Mitchell, to you, um, um, how how long do you think um, um, the new speaker, Mike Johnson, will, will hold out considering um, what Rachel just outlined there? Well, I, well, first of all, I think it shows that what happens when you don't have time to vet candidates right so i mean do we know why he doesn't have a bank account um like there's a lot of questions right i, I haven't looked into that do, t- do tell do, do tell he doesn't have a bank account no, I, I, yeah um, so there were a lot of uh, questions about his you know what's going on on the financial side of things um but but i also think on this issue of the yes um you know like how republicans are trying to respond to the White House funding requests, which was, you know, 13.6 billion additional funding for the border. So that would they would hire 1300 border patrol agents and 1600 asylum officers. But the Republicans are asking for major changes in how asylum requests are going to be handled uh, generally. And, and it's, they want asylum to be much harder to be initiated. And so I just can't see how that positioning on the issue is ever going to pass through a divided Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if that's the hard line that the the GOP right is taking, I, I think uh, Mike Johnson's going to be in a very difficult position in these negotiations. Let's uh, stay with uh, the issue of Trump, a, a slightly different area, though. The gag order on Monday of this week, a three-judge three panel of the D.C. U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals heard oral arguments 
in a closely watched case stemming from uh, Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election and obstruct the lawful transfer of power. He pled, uh, pleaded not guilty. The federal appeals panel appears inclined to restore the limited gag order in uh, this federal election subversion case, may loosen some restrictions so he can more directly criticize special counsel Jack Smith. Uh, we have just a few minutes before we go to break. I, I read, uh, I guess, some simplified <laughs> analysis of this that said that Donald Trump may have found his heads I win, tails you lose legal <laughs> challenge. So if the gag order is ended, he benefits, of course. He can attack Jack Smith's case. If Trump loses, he will have a new talking point for his narrative that, of course, yep. he's being persecuted to destroy the 2024 uh, his 2024 campaign, Rachel, um, <laughs> flip the coin. You see it that way, too? <laughs> uh, I think whatever the outcome is, he'll try to use it, right? I mean, that yeah. that's the nature of Donald Trump, uh, and he's he's very good at it. Um, so, yeah, it's a... It's an interesting case. There was one claim in particular that was made by the Trump legal team that I found particularly interesting, which was that this gag order effectively, quote unquote, muzzled core political speech. And there was, quote, near complete overlap between the issues in the political campaign and the issues in the case, which, you know, if if your case for re your case for election is essentially the exact same thing as your case that, you know, you interfered in an election uh, the first time around. That tells you a lot about just the election environment right now, right? And mm -hmm. the things that he wants to be able to talk about on the campaign trail. So, you know, this isn't about energy or, you know, immigration or <laughs> education. This is about, apparently, the 2020 election and relitigating the 2020 election in his mind. So his ability to be out on the campaign trail talking about the case, right, they're claiming, is is his case for the election, why he should be the candidate and why he should be elected. Um, and I, I find that a particularly strong statement of where we are. I would also just note there was an interesting amicus brief that was submitted by more than a dozen states attorneys general. And that was actually led by Iowa's Brenna Byrd, uh, which is interesting to me only because, of course, she has endorsed Donald Trump in this caucus cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, we have about a minute before the break. Um, the court's weighing, you know, when does Donald Trump's rhetoric uh, cross the line to undermining a, a, a criminal case, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, the the U.S. Court of Appeals here is is saying, right, that Trump is not above the law or free from criminal pro prohibitions against intimidating or tampering with witnesses. Um, so, but they're trying to strike a balance because as, you know, given that he's running for president, um, giving him sort of a free, you know, a, a wide berth on free speech, but also, you know, that if there is, you know, if judges don't have the ability to use these types of gag orders, then then, yeah, he really would be above the law in that case. Mm -hmm. We'll take another short break. We'll be back with the final part of our program with Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University, our two political scientists. When we come back, let's move into um, talking about the caucus here in Iowa, just over 50 days until those January 5th caucuses. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, with a commanding lead in both the national and Iowa polls over his GOP rivals. 
Former Vice President Pence out, Senator Scott out, but Ron DeSantis picking up some key endorsements. We'll talk about that when we return. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of our program, back in just a moment. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer, Politics Wednesday edition of our program. Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University. Uh, let's move into caucus land for the final few minutes of our program. Yesterday, the influential Iowa evangelical leader, Bob Vanderplatz, endorsed uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida for the Republican presidential nomination. Um, This is the second major endorsement DeSantis has picked up this month. You you remember a few weeks back, uh, Governor Reynolds announced her support just two weeks ago. Uh, I want to play a couple of clips, one from Bob Vanderplatz. He's been on this program a number of times. I've had several conversations with him. It's been a a few years since he's been on our program. I'll have to ask him uh, back, of course, as we head into our general election uh, year of 2024. But uh, to listen to these uh, clips, uh, Rachel and Sarah, and to tell me what you hear in them. Let's listen to uh, first Bob Vanderplatz, uh, president and CEO of the Family Leader, endorsing Ron DeSantis yesterday on Fox News, uh, special reporter with Brett Beyer. Here's some of what he had to say. Uh, Governor DeSantis took a reliable toss-up state in Florida and made it complete red, one by 20 points, one in demographics that we haven't won in. But he's also done that by being a bold and courageous leader. So right away, it was kind of his endorsement to lose. But as you know, Brett in Iowa, uh, they go to church with us. They're in our homes. They come to our offices, the Leadership Summit. But at last Friday's Thanksgiving Family Forum, he closed the sale with me. He was very clear about We need a president who can serve two terms, not one term. We don't need a president that's gonna be a lame duck on day one. You need a president that's gonna surround themselves with the best and brightest people versus having a hard time attracting them again. And someone who's actually gonna do what they say they're gonna do. And I just think he's got the spine to do it. And I think he's got the experience to win for us. Now, before receiving the family leader endorsement, Ron DeSantis DeSantis attended their Thanksgiving Family Forum last Friday, where he continued his appeal to Iowa evangelicals and uh, here taking a swipe at what he calls liberal elites. As a Christian, they will say, go to church. Yeah, have your fun on Sunday for that one hour. But don't you dare bring that into public life. Don't actually live your life and live your faith. That They will not abide by that. And if there's ever a conflict between you living your faith and practicing your faith and their agenda, they expect you to bend the knee. That is not religious freedom as our founding fathers understood it. Our founding fathers... Our founding fathers rebelled against the idea that religious freedom was basically tolerated by elites in government so that if an elite wanted you to be able to have a certain amount of freedom, you could do it. If they didn't want you, then you didn't have to. That era of toleration ended when we declared independence and said, you know, these rights do not come from the government. They come from the Lord our God. 
Ron DeSantis last week on the campaign trail. So much to pick apart there. Um, Rachel or Sarah, <laughs> Sarah, let's go to you to trade off here. Sarah, you've got uh, the first pick here about what to take, you know, Bob Vanderplatt's reasons uh, for endorsing Ron DeSantis. And then we have, I guess, Ron DeSantis with his his version of our founding father's history. But Sarah, what would you like to look at? Well, I think it was kind of interesting that there was a, a nod to age there, right? Trump's age, <laughs> which is... We want a two-term uh, president or... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that's something, you know, that, you know, is obviously a, a focus in terms of pe- the way some people talk about Biden. So so I thought that was, was kind of interesting that he was, was referencing that. Um, it's also the sort of questioning of whether Trump would do as he promises, um, you know, so... You know, as president, he was, you know, the fact checkers had him making more than 30,000 false or misleading claims as president. So, mm-hmm. um, so uh, clearly, uh, you know, uh, I think that's kind of an interesting uh, part, too. But I would say, though, if you look at the, you know, 55 percent of the Des Moines Register respondents are devoutly religious. Um, and if you look at the, the 2020 election, you know, 76% of white evangelical Christians uh, voted for Trump. And and I think, you know, Trump's overall numbers in Iowa are certainly consistent with those, you know, the sort of percentage of Iowans that are devoutly religious and the overall percentage of his white evangelical support. So I think, um, you know, I so I, I don't expect that this is probably going to move too much support um, in DeSantis's direction, um, you know, Vanderplatt's uh he endorsed Huckabee, Santorum, and Cruz in the last three rounds of the caucuses, and, and none of them went on to win the nomination. So hmm. so I guess um, we can sort of look to—I mean, maybe we'll see if that plays out again uh, yeah. in this, this cycle. Rachel, your view? Well, I, I think, first of all, it's interesting to me that all of his comments contrasted Ron DeSantis with Donald Trump, uh, didn't really reference any of the other candidates— uh, so he sees this as kind of, I think, that that contrast right there is front and center. But also interesting to me that and this, in my mind, is a pretty late-breaking endorsement. Um, and some internal polling uh, at the state level, I think, indicates that it is unlikely to have any effect at all. Mm. Um so, you know, polls of Republicans, this poll of Republicans said that 29 percent had never even heard of Bob Vanderplatz. Um, tw- another 26 percent had no opinion about Bob Vanderplatz. Um, and only about a quarter of Iowa Republicans had a favorable or somewhat favorable view of Bob Vanderplatz. And then they went on to actually, you know, see how these how a Bob Vanderplatz, a hypothetical Bob Vanderplatz endorsement might change the race. And it didn't have any difference at all. It hmm. made no difference on levels of support for candidates. And so, you know, Bob Vanderplatz, I think, um, obviously wants the clout to say that, you know, he's he's been a part of this campaign, that he's on the same page as Kim Reynolds, that he's, you know, I think he sees some advantage to to being a part of the DeSantis effort. 
Um, but I don't think it's likely to have any substantial effect on the outcome of the caucuses. Interesting that you remark that DeSantis is, is uh, taking targeting uh, former President Trump, while not, if this is a foot race, uh, next to him is <laughs> the former South Carolina governor and the United right. Nations ambassador, Nikki Haley, uh, seeing some growing interest from political independents. Uh, uh, 16% of Iowa Republican caucus goers named Haley as their first choice for president. That's from the October Des Moines Register, NBC News, Mediacom, Iowa poll. That ties Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Of course, Trump way off in the distance with 43 percent support there. Uh, But Haley performing better with independents than she does with likely GOP caucus goers overall. Sarah, what do you see there in Nikki Haley's, well, rising support? She's got a long ways to go to catch the former president, but still this strong, relatively strong support among Iowa independents. I mean, I think she's done pretty well in the debate so far, and she's definitely, uh, you know, put herself, I think, in a in a more centrist position. Um, you know, her foreign policy positions, uh, some of her economic policies. Um, so I think, be, you know, so it makes sense that uh, some independents out there would find that attractive. And I saw a, there was a national poll that also showed that she was doing fairly well among independents. Of course, the problem is that, you know, the caucuses and primaries are decided by partisans. Um, And so now it's possible in Iowa that an independent could go register as a Republican and then caucus for Nikki Haley. But but essentially, uh, she's going to have to do well with the base, uh, right, to make it uh, through the nomination process. And so, so while I think... It, it bodes well if she were to get the nomination. Uh, I, I'm not. It's not clear to me how that's going to make any difference uh, in terms of uh, you know as we head into the the caucus and primary season. Mm-hmm. Rachel, before your comment on Nikki Haley, I'd like to uh, play a little clip of her campaigning. She's been appealing to moderates and never Trumpers, but. Well, really doesn't directly criticize the former president. Uh, she made campaign stops in New Hampshire this week, uh, courted its governor, uh, Chris Sununu. She had this uh, on one of those stops to say about former President Trump. I think President Trump was the right president at the right time. I was proud to serve America in his administration. I agree with a lot of his policies. But the reality is, Chaos follows him. You know it. It fought rightly or wrongly. Chaos follows him. And when we've got an economy out of control and we've got wars around the world, we can't afford any more chaos. Okay. Rachel, what do you think about that tack? <laughs> well, first of all, I find it interesting that, you know, uh, the chaos follows him line really absolves Donald Trump of any responsibility for creating the chaos. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which, you know, so it's it's an interesting, uh, interesting tact from that perspective. Um, you know, it's absolutely true that partisans are the ones that, that will vote in um, primaries and caucuses and, and determine the nomination. Having said that, you know, she's leading in New Hampshire right now, South Carolina after that. If she can do well in Iowa, I think she's well positioned to kind of emerge as the um, 
as the dominant alternative to Donald Trump. And we do know that there is a sizable faction within the Republican Party that's interested in looking for the next generation, looking for the alternative right. to Donald Trump. Nikki Haley brings that foreign policy expertise that some may find particularly attractive right now. So the issues on the table at this moment may be helping her. And then it's, you know, it's about Iowa. Can she get the momentum out of Iowa? And I think the one big thing that we don't know this year, it's fundamentally different than any prior year in the sense that the democratic process, like the democratic side of the aisle, is uncertain to a lot of voters, right? And so the fact that the Democrats have taken away first in the nation status, combined with the fact that they do not have a competitive process this year in Iowa, I think there are actually moderates and, you know, those who lean Democratic who could see Nikki Haley and say, you know what, I don't want Trump and Biden. They're old. They're out of step. They're, we've done this before. We know that Americans are not excited about Trump and Biden. That goes for Iowans as well. Uh, so I I could see some folks saying, mm -hmm. you know what, I'm going to go ahead and register Republican. I'm going to walk into that Republican caucus. I'm going to vote Nikki Haley. And I may change back to being a Democrat the next day or an independent the next day. But I'm going to take this shot at Nikki Haley. And her campaign seems to be actively encouraging that kind of thinking right now. Uh, it could boost her numbers in Iowa, which subsequently could give her some momentum coming out of the state. Right. And it's important. I know you said this in past election cycles, Rachel, uh, the creature that the caucus is. It's not necessarily that you need to be first. Right. But you need to exceed expectations. So Trump is way out ahead of it. And even if Trump might win by even double digits, but close double digits to Nikki Haley would be a tremendous win, wouldn't it? That That's the momentum you're talking about. Yeah. And I've been saying to a lot of people recently, you know, we oftentimes talk about this conventional wisdom that there are three tickets out of Iowa. I think this year there are only two tickets out of Iowa. Mm. I think there's Donald Trump and then whoever comes in second, if that person does well enough to exceed expectations. And so my general take on this is if Donald Trump gets less than 50 percent of the caucus votes, and that's where he's polling right now, and DeSantis or Haley are capable of getting up to the 25 or 30 percent mark, um, then I think the story coming out of Iowa has nothing to do with Donald Trump. It has everything to do with outperforming expectations for that second place finisher. And I think that could be like that's likely to be the story of Iowa in 2024. We have a few minutes left. Let's tackle this very quickly. Former President Trump uh, posting a flattering but vague health report from his doctor <laughs> on Monday. Yes, vague. And I love his health reports. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Declaring the 77-year-old Trump's health, quote, excellent, and he has recently lost weight through an improved diet, daily physical activity. The timing of the report appearing to take a jab at President Biden. Of course, this week, his 81st birthday. Um, Donald Trump has repeatedly mocked Biden's age. However, Donald Trump has plenty of his own verbal stumbles on the campaign trail. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre uh, responded to a question from a Fox News reporter about the president's age on Monday. Let's hear her response. So what we say is we have to judge him by what he's done, not by his numbers. And, and one more thing I will add, this is the first president ever that's been able to go to an active war zone without our military, uh, you know, controlling what's happening on the ground. And so, look, um, I would put the president's stamina, 
president's wisdom, ability to get this done on behalf of, of uh, the American people against anyone, anyone on any day of the week. Okay, both candidates actually very close in age, less than four years separating them, 77 and now a new 81 for Biden. Uh, Sarah, take a quick crack at this, please. How do you see age playing out in this race so far, the tussle here? Well, yeah, I mean, if we're going to talk gaffes, I mean, Trump has said more than once that he's running, you know, needs to get rid of Obama, um, (laughs) implying that Obama is still president. Um, There's been several mistakes on the, you know, misnaming countries or or speaking um, in Sioux City (laughs) and naming it Sioux Falls. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, So, you know, the. This is happening, you know, I mean, this happens to me now, you know, and I'm only in my 50s. Uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, but, but I think, um, yeah, you know, the, the proof is in, you know, the actual performance on the job. And I think uh, Biden's negotiations um, behind the scenes for this uh, uh, pause and the, the fighting in Gaza, you know, he was very actively involved for several weeks. He, he did travel. Uh, to Israel, you know, in a very active conflict situation. He also traveled to Ukraine uh, when the war, you know, in the, when the war was ongoing. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I think you, you have to look at the performance um, in terms of, how, you know, how he's doing the job on a, on a everyday basis. And I think there's a lot of evidence that he's putting in a long hours and, and able to, you know, make these international trips and and do these negotiations. Rachel, the final 30 seconds for you. (laughs) Um, Well, 77 percent of the American public think Biden is too old. And that's just not true for Donald Trump. Only 51 percent of Republicans think he's too old. Um, And so, you know, that's a uh, Donald Trump's gaffes are part of his brand. Joe Biden's aren't. And so on the campaign trail, it just hits Joe Biden a little bit differently. Um, But that's all I'm going to say. For a Thanksgiving treat, I'm going to recommend that people spend some time paying attention to a Eurasian eagle owl in Central Park. His name is Flacco. He's delightful to watch. Happy Thanksgiving to you both, Sarah and Rachel. You too. Thanks. Thank you. Today's program produced by Danny Gere with technical help from Sam McIntosh and Tony Sarabia.